and welcome to an interview with podcast series from the Social Investment Business. I'm Nick and today I'm talking to Lord Victor Adebowale, Chief Executive of Turning Point. Uh, can you start by briefly telling us more about Turning Point and what the organisation aims to achieve? Well, we're a social business, I guess. Um, we're registered with the Charity Commission, but we also registered as with Companies House and, you know, but our, our model is, is, is social business. We don't do any fundraising. We, we earn our keep, I guess. And I guess what we're about uh, as an organisation, our aim is to be a social business and a successful one and a strong one, but to be a partner to public services or to the statutory sector in a sense, a partner to the NHS because we're in the health and social care business. So for us, that is about being a partner um, with, with the NHS and others, but generally a partner alongside the NHS. And to provide services that reverse the inverse care law, which states that those people in need of our services most tend to get them the least, and to particularly address those people who have complex needs, because not only do we have a moral duty to, to engage with those individuals, but actually it's costly not to. Now, the plans for the NHS reforms mm. um, are considered quite controversial mm. by some. How did you find the experience of being a member of the NHS Future Forum? Mm. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that um, I thought it was led very well by Steve Field, Professor Field. Um, I, I really admire his leadership on this. It's a very difficult task to be given by a government who's doing it because actually their, their policy was in trouble. I mean, that's why they did it. And I think he did a really good job of, of herding cats, really, in, into, into a coherent report. But the timescale was very, very short. I mean, and so by definition, it was flawed. I mean, this is the NHS we're talking about. We listened to, you know, about 25,000 people in, in 10 weeks, which is a lot, but it's nowhere near that covers what's needed needed to, uh, to be covered in terms of that kind of exercise. And, of course, the bill had already been written, in a way. Therefore, it's limited in terms of what we can do practically against the politics which had got well into the game of politics so I've said it may seem unkind but I think the process by definition was flawed simply by its time scale and where it was put in the process of creating policy I guess it would have been a more effective exercise if it had been done before the bill for a, long, for a longer period of time in which the outcomes were less dictated by political imperatives but having said that, I think we, what we did was create a platform for more credible change to the NHS. And as a member of that forum, which mm. presented these recommendations mm. to the government, um, how positive are you about the future of the NHS? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimistic kind of person, really, <laughs> doing what I do. Uh, optimism, and I'm, you know, I always say this to people, they think I'm being cheeky, but I'm paid too much to be pessimistic. You know, I think... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the things about leadership, I think, is, is to is to be optimistic and realistic. Because uh, optimism without realism is kind of delusional. But I think the NHS represents what our society is about. You know, the NHS isn't just about health; it's about a set of values which are pretty hardwired into the British people, actually. And I think that's a really, really good thing. And I think that that means that the future of the NHS will always be positive in the sense that the, the, the public are very committed to the NHS values as well as the service. And, and um, I think politicians who are wise realise that. They realise that it's not just about the services, the hospitals, the doctors, the, it's about the values, you know, no one left behind. We think that health is a right, you know, you have a right to, to a healthy to access to health. You know, we believe that access to health should not just be the privilege of the rich. I mean, this is one of the areas that a lot of people are saying perhaps charities and social enterprises can mm. move into working with the NHS. Mm. 
What do you think are the main opportunities for those kind of groups when mm. working in health and mm. social care? Yeah. Well, I mean, as a social business, as a, as a social enterprise, I guess, I think the opportunities are really around the reorganisation, the opportunity to, to integrate health and social care. The public don't really give a monkey's chuff about the demarcation. What they want are services that mean they don't have to go from Bill to Paul to George to Sarah to Julie. You know, they want a service which is about an individual, which treats you as an individual, and which is and which is comprehensive. So I think there's lots of opportunities to reintegrate health and social care, not least because if we don't, we're spending an awful lot of money. So that's one opportunity. The second opportunity, I think, is involving communities in really meaningful ways that make public services reflect the needs of individuals and or communities. And that means a redefinition of what commissioning is. Because most people, when you ask them what commissioning is, they use language which actually describes procurement. And so commissioning should be the means by which you understand the needs of an individual and or a community such that you can build a platform for procurement. Now, I think there's an opportunity in that definition uh, for a whole new market, effectively, in understanding individuals and or communities and indeed creating or co-producing services that are integrated across health and social care that people understand and use and use early. Talking about those public services, mm. if charities and social enterprises want to get more involved mm. in delivering public services, mm. what do you think is the one thing they need the most? I think they need to be risk aware, not risk averse. I think they need to see themselves as businesses. I know there's been a lot of debate about the engagement of charity or not-for-profit business in the delivery of public services. My view has always been, if you're not providing services to the public, what the hell are you doing? And going back to Turning Point, what's the hardest thing about leading a big organisation? Oh, it's not hard at all, it's easy. <laughs> um, well, I think, I think the hard thing is never, although I don't find it hard, but maybe it's just because I'm a miserable blighter, um, is never resting on your laurels, really. It's never imagining there is a plateau on which one can rest and put your feet up. I think it becomes a way of life to, to just keep striving for your best, you know, for the best that the organisation can do. So I guess that's hard in the sense that it's, it's a constant um, pressure to do better rather than to just sort of, you know, oh, we've reached this plateau. Well, actually, that's a, the endogenous growth theory doesn't apply to organisations like Turning Point. Um, and I guess, the, the, you know, it's challenging, particularly now, to keep an eye on, on the future you know, financial economic developments while also responding to what's happening right now. You know, I mean, I think the job of the leader is to add value, but part of that is to think things that the rest of the organisation isn't thinking about what might be happening or need to happen five, ten years ahead. Because if you're not doing that, and if nobody's doing it, then you're always led by the immediate. And if you're led by the immediate, you're always going to be surprised by the future. <laughs> you know what I mean? And while you can't predict the future chance tends to favour the prepared mind but I've got a great team here I mean you, the other thing is maintaining it's not difficult for me because I've got a great team um, but it's also about maintaining that a team you know maintaining a leaderful mind you know and um, you've been a peer for 10 years now oh, the peerage yeah um, 10 years Ooh, God, wow <laughs> yeah. what's been the most rewarding thing that you've been able to do in that role I guess you know because I've got a full-time job I can't do as much of this as I'd like to and that's partly a good thing, because if I was a full-time politician, then I'm not sure I'd be a very good one. You know, to be honest, I think being grounded in the reality of work, needing to work, is quite important. But I think being able to stand up for people who, who are often the losers in the Treasury model, the people who will be affected by the changes in housing benefit, no matter how much the government says um, it's going to be OK, 
the fact of the matter is that families in many cities around the country are going to have to move again. You know, children are going to have to say goodbye to their friends. People will lose their jobs and may never get another job. Now, you know, somebody has to say that's what's happening. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. And when people say, well, we've got a deficit and we've got to sort that out, I say, yeah, that's fine, but what kind of society do you want to live in? One with no debt, but standing on the heads of the poor <laughs> because they've carried the burden of something they didn't create. Or a society in which, yeah, all right, we're managing the debt, we're making decisions and it's tough, but we're not doing it on the backs of the poorest. Being able to stand up and say stuff around welfare, around you know housing benefit, around the health service, but from the point of view of people who aren't in the room usually, I've found to be quite useful. And I guess I've also found it useful explaining to young people. So I kind of quite like talking to young people and saying, well, actually, yeah, I know it's an old place and it's full of old people, but would you rather have policy made by people who've lived through some or by some wannabes? You know, actually having the debate and getting them to understand how the country's run so they can take part in either changing how it's run or take part in how it's run. Right, uh, well, that's the end of the formal questions. Good. And then we have a, a really short, quick oh, right, okay. section, which is just a bit of fun. Oh, um, right, okay. Just to ask you a series of questions and yeah. you just say what your preference is. Oh, right, is. okay, I'm not very good at answering questions quickly, <laughs> am I really? Tea or coffee? Coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. Uh, north or south? North. National or local? God, Nash local. <laughs> <laughs> Suit or jeans? Jeans, actually, to be honest. Charity or business? Business. Cricket or tennis? Tennis. And big society or good society? Oh, you cheeky sort. <laughs> oh, a big good society. <laughs> <laughs> very diplomatic. <laughs> uh, and that concludes our interview with Lord Victor Adeborali. Thank you very much for Thank you very much. Today. It's been a gas. That's good, yeah. Um, yeah. Don't forget to check our website, www.thesocialinvestmentbusiness.org forward slash an interview with and our Twitter at The Social Invest for the next instalment. And you can find out more about Turning Point at www.turning-point.co.uk or follow them on Twitter at Turning Point UK. Thank you. There we go. Brilliant. Great, very good.